Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Allage and this is Skyline's the Cinematic Podcast. This is the part two of, of uh, yesterday's episode in which we spoke to Andrew Boff, one of the people running to be the Conservative candidate for Mayor of London in 2020. Today we're going to hear from one of his rivals, Joy Morrissey. Um, before that though, let's, let's just check in with what's going on with the third candidate in the race, another GLA member, Sean Bailey. No, still haven't managed to find a time slot in Sean Bailey's busy, busy diary there, so we just have to enjoy that rather fine piece of music by, by Kevin Cloud used under Creative Commons. Just slipping in the attribution there so I don't get in trouble. Okay, seriously, we are now going to hear from Joy Morrissey. Joy was born in the United States, but has lived in London most of her adult life, and is now a British citizen. She's a councillor in the West London Borough of Ealing, a former parliamentary candidate, and she worked at Ian Duncan Smith's Centre for Social Justice. She also, I got the sense as, as our interview continued, she sort of sees herself as the wild card in this race. There's a, there's a vague air of insurgency about that candidacy, which is quite interesting to watch. So, let's hear from Joy. Okay, well, thank you very much for, for joining us today to talk about our fine city. It's great to be here. First thing uh, I, I'm curious about is, um, it's not a London accent you've got there, is it? No, um, I became a British citizen. I um, moved here, went and did my master's at the London School of Economics, stayed, had a child, fell in love with London and have never left. So um, I certainly understand the struggles of coming here sort of as an outsider with nothing a suitcase, my many trips to Croydon to Luna House, getting my immigration papers sorted. I'm so sorry we made you go to Croydon. <laughs> I've gone many times, did my life in the UK test. And I think having that experience of coming in and benefiting so much from the opportunities that London has given me, it makes me incredibly grateful, but also wanting to give something back. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of people outside the city don't necessarily appreciate about London is that you know, the average Londoner is not actually from London. No, I, I'd never actually, besides my husband, who is English, but I didn't really know many English people until I joined the party, because you're sort of friends with all everyone who's, 
you know, here studying from Australia, New Zealand, um, every part of Europe, and we're all here in this cosmopolitan place. And I don't think people realize how diverse it actually is, particularly where I live. I think it's 40% non-white British. So it's a, it's the most cosmopolitan mm. city in the world, which I, which is what I love about it, actually. Yeah, and no, I think it's uh, increasingly feels like a point of pride for Londoners. Yes. But also, it's sort of, but in some ways, it's the fact we're proud of it. It's sort of a point of difference for the rest of the country, I think, mm, where there's, mm. where is this sort of retrenchment going on. But let's, let's, let's get nerdy about policy. That's mm. what, that's what everyone really wants us to, to do right that's now. That's why so, we're here. So we, when we were just chatting before starting recording, you were saying that, um, before you got into politics, housing was actually your passion, right? Mm. It was. And, and just, not just housing, but housing inequality and seeing sort of how people, particularly in London are falling by the wayside. They're working, but they're, they're not, they're still in private rented accommodation. They can't get on the housing ladder They're I, I deal with a lot of family homelessness as well as a counselor. And, and I see people who are sometimes evicted and put in temporary accommodation for longer than they're meant to be. And oftentimes in B and B's that the conditions are horrible. And, and those kind of things that I keep seeing happening again and again in London. That's why I got into housing policy and that's why I wanted to do something about it. Okay. So what is that something? What what do you think we need to do about well, it? Well, I think we need to desperately increase the supply um, in, in all levels of housing. And particularly if you look at the sort of hidden homelessness in London, if you look at each local authority maybe has on average, well, in Ealing, for example, we have about 10,000 people on the housing wait list. And those are, those are people that are waiting for social housing that are stuck in temporary accommodation and filling that, that sort of, first of all, that niche, the temporary accommodation niche is something that I think we could accomplish by what I've been doing is approaching pension funds to see if we could increase the supply of high quality, um, private rented accommodation. And it can be private for social and private rent and it can be a sort of built on um, public land. So oftentimes councils have land that they can create a community trust with. Um, Barking and Dagenham is the only council in London that's doing this. They're doing it in Leeds and other parts of the country, actually, but they're not doing it here. And so it's it's looking at creative ways of using either council land or unused brownfield sites that we could actually build properties without even additional funding for housing to go into it. It can be from the private sector. Now, I'm, I'm also an advocate for increasing shared ownership schemes in the capital as well. So a lot of people who are trying to get my age, trying to buy, purchase a home, the only way that we can do it is through shared ownership. And it's a great scheme, except it's very difficult to access the financing. So trying to see if there's a way that we can increase the availability of shared ownership financing for Londoners to see if there's a way to, to have a sort of financing pool that's specifically for Londoners so that young Londoners, working families, people that want to try to buy something can actually access the shared ownership that's available. And, and, and looking at how we can build an unused brownfield sites on TFL land on, on places in London that we actually could be building on even industrial sites that could be rezoned and seeing how we can creatively build more housing across London in maybe a, a way that we haven't in the past. And and I think we have to use sort of all sectors. We have to use, we have to look at social housing as well. I think that's important that we need to, to revisit that and, and something that I've been advocating for, which probably seemed a bit radical, but just asking for more of our, our 
our money to be used to build social housing stock because um, we used to have in, in the 80s, we had about 80% subsidy for building social housing. So people built a lot of it. And we, we now have about 10% subsidy. So it's difficult to say, okay, well, this is what we want to build and we're not actually investing back into it. So, so I think that's something that I've been advocating for. Uh, we need a multi-tiered approach to mm-hmm. tackling this because it's so complex. There's no one easy answer, but I think we need to look at every kind of housing, every way of increasing supply across London and, and, and focusing on that. And that's what I'd like to do. No, I kind of want to unpack various bits yeah. of that. But f- first of all, like, it's quite interesting. You're not, you're not the first Tory I've heard say we need to get back to social housing. Mm. But that is nonetheless a, a sort of shift from, from the presumptions of that bit of the political spectrum. Like, do you think, do you, do you think it's that unusual as a stance from the Tories? Or do you think like more people are, are taking this line now? I think more people are, are looking at it and seeing that just normal people from every walk of life need to have access to housing. And so making it available and, and thinking sort of long term is important. So I don't, I don't think that I'm the only one. And I think it's certainly become more prevalent in London specifically because mm-hmm. of the acute housing shortage that we have. I'm also keen to sort of talk more about this this idea of a sort of new model for housing development. So, mm-hmm. like, first off, you're kind of talking about getting institutional landlords in there, mm-hmm. like private money. I think probably there are going to be people who are a bit uncomfortable with this idea of, like, living in a house, house effectively owned by a corporation or a bank or something. Like, what's the argument for, for getting those kind of investors in? Well, the argument is that there's a convergence of interest between, let's say, a pension fund that needs a slow rate of return and people that need secure rent that they can live in for sort of 30 years at a, at a rate that could only go up by three to 5% say, so that you could have a secure place to live long term without having to sort of, you know, right now we have people that you can be evicted after six months, for example, having something that you could live in long term that would give the pension funds a steady rate of return and then would give you as, as a renter somewhere to stay that the rent could be dependable and you could stay in a long-term way. And I think it's also very good for key worker housing. So for example, if the NHS or the police stations wanted to, instead of maybe selling off the land, keeping the land and building key worker housing on it, that they could have long-term, I think is a good alternative. It's just looking at sort of instead of, because the land value is so high in London and, and when you have councils or public bodies selling off the land, it's thinking about actually, can we keep it and invest and have a better long-term strategy? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the, the only reason I went and tried to find other money is because oftentimes there isn't other money available. So I just sort of, it was really, honestly, this whole thing came about because of seeing the family homelessness issues in London and a particular family that I worked with that actually got evicted. Mm. And there was nothing I could do to prevent it happening. And they went to a horrible B&B that was like cockroach infested. And it was, and it was, I was in tears and I went to visit them probably four times. And I just thought, I, I want to do something to change this. And so I just started marching around, going to places, sort of seeing what could possibly be done, who would be willing to maybe invest financially in housing that hadn't done so before and how we could inject a new sort of creative housing finance into the sector to increase the supply. 
Yeah, no, I think this is one of the big shifts in particularly London's housing crisis that I think a lot of national politicians have not really got their head around is there are now families with children living in rental accommodation with no prospect of getting out of it to speak of. And if you're, if you're moving house every six months in your twenties, that's kind of a little bit annoying. Whereas if you've got like a child in school or something that's actively like that's going to screw up someone's childhood, right? Yeah. And I'm a private renter with a family. So I'm also you know, acutely aware of how difficult it is that you, you're just trying to do what's best for your family, but you don't have security long term that, and so it's just, and it's something that's just commonplace now for a lot of us. What about the land issue? Like you, you talk mm-hmm. about how, how much land do you think, do you think there is enough land to meet London's housing needs without doing anything radical? Well, I have to be careful what I say because some oh, no, some of the th- some of the things I think like are brilliant ideas. I really have to consult with the councils. I, mm. I have to be very careful because both I have to consult with both Labour and Conservative councils about what because a lot of the areas of land that could be redeveloped cross the lines of different local authorities. Mm, so yeah. you have to have the development corporation like an old oak common that you know worked very well in, in Docklands, but. With the issue of Old Oak Common, it is three different boroughs converging into one. And so there's issues with SIL funding, Section 106, where's it all going? Is it going to help? Where are the amenities going to go? So, for example, there's sort of a lot of unused industrial land along the Thames from Barking and Dagenham coming sort of up. If if you wanted to sort of consult with the other local authorities and, and see if this would be possible, but creating a development corporation where the land could be publicly owned and then rezoned into housing. So then you could build on the land, capturing the value when it, the up value when it becomes, you know, when you mm. get planning permission, but then using that to build more affordable housing in that area and more, it, it can be a mixture of housing, but actually building it in a way that's affordable while capturing the value before it's bought by developers and goes, you know, because that's the, that's the problem that we're seeing a lot of times where you, you see land being purchased, the value going up once planning permission is, is given, where you could actually build working with a contractor to build housing at a lower rate. Um, if you, if you're capturing the value of this sort of change in planning permission. I mean, Barking Riverside, I find, is an interesting one because it has been, like, I, I grew up at that end of mm, town, mm. a bit further out in, in Havering, but... but I it, like Havering. Oh, really? I, I'm, oh. I'm not a huge fan. My oh. mum's still there, but there is a reason I don't live there anymore. Oh. Um, but, but yeah, the Barking Riverside is, it's been talked about as kind of this a future big housing zone for London for, you know, upwards of 20 years. Mm. And it's happened incredibly slowly for all sorts of reasons. But one of them is that it's very expensive to build there because the land is contaminated mm-hmm. and because it's ex-industrial. But it's also not really going to like no one's going to pay the sums of money required to to buy a six hundred thousand pound house on Barking Riverside or something because you're miles from anywhere like this. Aren't there other things you would need to do, like, you know, in terms of transport and so on to kind of actually sort of turn that into a new, a new residential area? So when I first stood these many weeks ago, um, made it into the final three, I was talking about really wanting to increase TFL sort of transport infrastructure for the purposes of housing. So reaching those unusable areas through expanding DLR lines, making things that actually you could build houses on, but are inaccessible to the public because of, you know, the lack of transport links. So I think it's important for me looking at anything to do with transport is first, obviously getting it to be, 
you know, plugging the sort of deficit in TFL, but then using, hopefully with the vision of expanding transport links for the purposes of opening up those unused areas of London that we could have housing in, but the transport links aren't there. So expanding the transport links to make housing more available. So is is that kind of eastern riverfront the main area you're thinking of in these terms? Or are there other bits of town where you think there is housing there is possibility of housing if only there was a better if there was only there was a tube station or something there. I, I think this is true across so much of London. I mean there I mean not to say I don't want to give specific examples, but just going across London as I have been doing recently this summer, just seeing how certain parts, even Sutton, for example, you know, there's no real easy way of getting to certain parts of Sutton without taking uh, several buses. You know, there's there certain areas that in London that actually have great communities, um, great amenities, but they don't have the transport links that could make them even more viable in the long term. So I think for me, it's looking at how we can expand affordably into into areas that that we could increase housing and i think also looking at where councils want to work with the mayor to develop those housing you know those areas i mean if you look at ealing for example they've done a lot around where all the crossrail stops are meant to be in south hall like south hall gas works and things like that where a lot of it came about because of the transport links opening up mm. and so i think when when transport is coming there is an ability to put in housing and developments where there hasn't been before. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, we're on transport. What else? Uh, transport is obviously, you know, probably the single biggest mm. area in which the mayor actually has power. Like, what would, if, were you to become the next mayor of London, what else would you want to do on the sort of transport front? Well, I'd like to look at how we can kind of make it actually run at a surplus. And that would be amazing. Um, and looking at how we can make each journey, you know, it's sort of like the postal service where you have, you know, each letter that gets delivered has a little, makes a little bit of a surplus and how we can kind of do that in the sense of increasing our efficiency in, in the journeys with TFL, but also how do we make it on the whole more profitable? How do we increase, I, I mean, I'd like to increasing the amount of 
TFL land we use for building homes, increase the commercial viability of stations. If you have rental property, if you have storefronts in stations, that's a profit that the station could be making. Certain stations are very good at that. And I'm interested to see sort of if that can be increased. I'd also like to see more tourists using TFL on a regular basis. I think we were very good at that during the Olympics. And I see a lot of tourists who come in and don't even ever access TFL because they just use Uber or they use um, the sort of hop on, hop off bus or they're, you know, and making it so that it's part of the package. Japan's very good at that where they have sort of when you come to Japan, you get it, you can get your rail pass and you're kind of, you're told what to do. And then you're, you pay a certain fee and then you kind of are accessing their transport links and particularly in each city, you can get a pass that allows you to do that and sort of making it so that we're using that money that's coming in from from tourists and putting it on TFL so that the, those journeys are being by the tourists that are visiting London on a daily basis. That really surprises me because I would have assumed it would be a significant way of getting around. I mean, London is so built around public transport and also some of the things the city is most famous for are the, you know, big red buses and, you know, one of the, it's the oldest underground network in the world. Mm. So I would have assumed that tourists would tend to use the tube and the buses. Is that not, is that not your experience? I think that they could, I, I think it's just about making London as welcoming as possible for when people come so that they, they can actually just access the transport very easily. I took a bunch of people who were visiting on a Thames sort of tour. And I I think people didn't realize that there's a Thames TFL line that you can take along the Thames too. And it's actually half the price of what the tourists are using. But I, I, Mm. you know, it's, it's not as accessible as the other areas. So little things like that. I mean, I just, I want to make, to look at every aspect of TFL, how we can make the efficiency savings to actually keep TFL running, but also expanding its links so that we can build the housing that we need throughout London. And uh, you did an interview with Conservative Home, mm. as, as did all the, all the candidates kind of mm. talking about what your priorities would be. And you were talking about sort of more the future of transport stuff, mm. like, you know, the rise of the electric car and that mm-hmm. kind of, do you want to kind of like, where, where do you think that fits into the vision? Well, I think we need, I mean, if you look at the, the amount of diesel that's emitted from, from buses in central London, we have an issue. And so I think we need to look at how we can bring in hybrid vehicles, both for, for, our buses, even our black cabs, looking at how we can cut down on on that and, and make actually our air quality better in London. That's something that's a priority for me in encouraging people to, to use non-diesel vehicles has been a priority for both mayors, for Boris and, and for the current mayor. So it's not something that, that is new, but I think it's something we need to continue. And it's why I'm actually opposed to Heathrow expansion because of the air quality issues. Mm. Um, that we already have in, in West London. And I just haven't seen a strong enough case for that. So it's why I'm continue to be opposed. You to don't, it. you don't buy the arguments that London needs extra aviation capacity that close to town. I do, but I think that we could have that by expanding Gatwick or some of the other airports as well, and then trying to increase our transport links to those airports, sort of in a New York style. New York has multiple hub airports, mm. Um, so I think that we could do the same thing in London. 
Yeah, no, I've never quite understood why why the industry has really tried so hard to sell the idea of a hub airport. Because I can see if you're working in the aviation industry, a hub airport is brilliant, but it's not very clear to me what the city around it gets out of it. Yeah, because if you're on the other side of town, how is that how is that helpful for you to have to go all the way a two and a half hour journey at times to get there? Why, why not make it so that you have hubs around London and then make the airports more connected. Well, also, surely one of the reasons uh, the aviation industry likes hub airports is that people sort of fly in on one plane, fly out on another, and spend their money in the airport in between time. If you happen to be the person who owns Heathrow, that's brilliant. Mm. Whereas if you happen to live within a couple of miles of it, not so much. They're not seeing any of that money. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is an aside. I've never quite understood the... It just feels a bit kind of... Uh, inside baseball, the way they talk about that. What else is your campaign about? We've kind of we've done we've done housing and transport. Those are obviously the things that we get most excited about around here. But I, there are there are other policy areas. I understand. So what 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 else are you into? Well, I think looking at at people who have children and working. Um, I am someone with a young child, and I think making London a place where people with young families and children can stay that they can afford it, but also that they can work in London encouraging sort of a work-life balance businesses that that encouraging people that have children to be able to stay here in London and 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 settle down rather than have the sort of what we're seeing now is is everyone sort of leaving and i i want to make london a place that does work for everyone and i think that that is a sort of niche area that we could really improve on to what extent is this just housing again though i mean like the reason people leave is because it's expensive to get a big enough house. I think childcare too. I mean, I think it's very difficult if you're working. I worked a full-time job and then I was a counselor and, and it's very hard unless you have, luckily I have people that help me, um, family. It's just really the family network, extended family network. But if you don't, it's very difficult to pick up your child at school to then, you know, the amount of time it takes you to get back. It does come down, you're right, back to housing. But it's also sort of the cost of having your child be cared for by someone else. So I think that's another thing that comes back to housing of how we can tackle that and the childcare issue. Is that something the mayor is empowered to do or is it more about kind of just banging the drum? for It's banging the drum, really. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, the mayor's powers are very limited, really. I mean, it's just sort of it's transport, obviously, the most. And then even with police and crime, it's really sort of a glorified police and crime commissioner where they can ask for priorities. But that's their limited capacity. And also with housing, I mean, there are devolved powers, but it's not as much as transport. So, but the mayor, I think, can advocate for things in a positive way. You also, before we, before we start the recording, you were talking about rough sleeping being a topic you're interested in. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, housing first. Yeah. Housing first. So housing first is a policy that, um, crisis, um, developed. It's actually off of a, a model. Housing first came from, European model, and it's looking at a wraparound approach to tackle rough sleeping. So it's giving people a home first and then helping them deal with mental health, addiction, all of these things. And we have a lot of rough sleepers in London that also have addiction issues. And there's some excellent grassroots charities in London that are working to tackle addiction, but we don't have enough support. So I'd like to actually advocate for more support for addiction charities and things like that. But but bringing housing first, which the West Midlands mayor has done, speaking about learning from regional models, mm. the West Midlands mayor, Andy Street, has done this by adopting housing first, and it's been very successful. And 
what I'd like to see is this model rolled out in London so that we can tackle rough sleeping. We can offer a holistic approach to housing, mental health, and addiction support. And actually, in the long term, I feel that it would be very beneficial to London as a whole. And should I say some, because I, I've, I work a lot with Crisis, and Crisis has an excellent sort of handbook that they created this summer of launching to tackle homelessness at every level. It's very, actually a complete, and I think one of the best holistic approaches to tackling homelessness that I've seen. And I'd really like to advocate a lot of those policies for London, um, because it's not just rough sleeping, it is the issue of family homelessness, student homelessness, people that are secretly stuck in temporary accommodation. So even when you're... Sofa surfing and so on. Yes, yeah. yeah. And people who aren't actually being audited when you're looking at asking people about how they like living in social housing, there's a huge amount of people that are stuck in temporary accommodation that no one even knows what they're feeling, what's happening, you know, how their lifestyle, their their standard of living, what what it's like. And so finding a way for those people to get secure housing is, is a priority for me. I mean, I, I get the sense from a lot of the people on the, the Tory side of the fence that they're, they're going to try and make this a law and order election and so talk about the, uh, the rise in violent crime and so on. Where do you stand on those kind of policies? What, what, are your, what would your crime policies be? Well, I think we need to look at what I've been speaking to a lot of Met police officers just to see what they feel like would be helpful and and I'm also interested to have a holistic approach on youth outreach. I've been speaking to a lot of charities, grassroots charities like Gangs United, that does a lot of work tackling gang violence in London. And I think what they keep telling me is that, one, a lot of these charities need funding. So I think the mayor could be funding a lot of these grassroots charities that are doing excellent work. And that there's been a huge reduction in knife crime in places that there's a, an academy, I think it's called Oasis Academy in South London, that has had a dramatic reduction in knife crime because they've had a holistic approach to helping young people. So they have um, after school support, sports programs, psychological support. They, there's sort of a wraparound approach to student care that's allowing for people to not fall through the cracks. You're seeing youth sort of knife crime being linked to gang violence pretty substantially. And you see a lot of children being targeted, even as young as 10 on an estate. And then they're, they're targeted. And oftentimes the people carrying knives are not doing it because they want to, they're doing it out of defense. You have the sort of drug dealers and drug enforcers that are carrying knives, but you don't actually, a lot of people are just carrying them in defense. So it's how can you make the school environment, going back home, a safe environment again? How can you make a state safe again? How can you make people feel like they can leave their child to go to school and they're not going to be targeted by a gang member the moment they walk out their front door? So it's looking at how do we approach this issue? And I think it's twofold. I think it is that wraparound approach for youth outreach, working with charities. And then it's it's speaking to police officers and seeing what they think would be the best approach for tackling this on the front lines. It strikes me talking to you that you're kind of, you're very wonkish. You're very sort of engaged in policy stuff and sort of like talking about issues you care about. To we, a fault. <laughs> I'm just Doesn't one, make a good politician. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm genuinely wondering, forgive me the blunt mm. question, but like, were you expecting to be shortlisted? I was not expecting. I, I really, I wanted to talk about housing policy. It's something I really care about. And I genuinely thought this is something that is a devolved power of the mayor. I want to put my name forward 
Um, I was just happy I was in the final 10 and I was delighted to have made it to the final 10. And I, I genuinely want to see London be a better place. I genuinely care. And I thought that this was an opportunity of a lifetime to talk about those things. So whoever the candidate is going forward can actually make a difference, can make London better and can challenge the current mayor to do more to build more homes, particularly that London needs. And I, I studied at LSE. I did my master's at LSE in European social policy. And I was interested in studying the welfare state typology of Europe and learning from other places to find what the best solutions are. So it, it isn't that I've just sort of come out of the blue and thought, yeah, I'll just, you know, come out here and, and try to say a few words. I, I really have spent a long time trying to look at the best policies that, that are there and how we can improve the quality of life for everyone in London. London has moved very noticeably into the Labour column in the last few years, mm. um, and Brexit seems to have kind of locked it there. I mean, do you think a Tory can beat Sadiq Khan? I think the London electorate, one thing that they've shown us is that they have their own minds, and oftentimes, historically, it's gone the opposite way of the rest of the country. When we've had a Labour-held government in the rest of the country, we've had more of a shift back to conservative in London. I mean, I think London voters are probably some of the most intelligent voters in the country. They do really care about a lot of issues. And I think for me, it's about presenting an argument that we can provide the best solutions, we can provide the best outcomes for London, and we can solve the housing crisis and the affordability crisis better than any other party. And 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 I, I don't think it should be about the sort of tribal politics that we keep seeing that I, I don't think I think everyone is tired of. I think it needs to be about who is going to actually give the most practical solutions and the best outcomes for London, whoever that is, and 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 actually stopping and saying, what is best for London? Who can give that? And who is going to be committed to solving some of these very, very difficult issues? So we've spoken to two of the three people running to be the Conservative candidates in London's 2020 mayoral election. We haven't managed to pin down an interview of Sean Bailey. Sean, if you are out there, if you're listening, if you're regretting not giving us the benefit of your time and your wisdom, my door is always open, and that's especially while this race is ongoing. But even after it's done, if you're the candidate, we'd love to speak to you. Even if you're not the candidate, you're a member of the Greater London Assembly, always happy to chat and get different perspectives on things. And, you know, we do, as, as part of the New States, we do tend to sort of lean to the left around here. So it's sometimes nice to kind of hear from people on, on the other side of the fence. I do think Sean Bailey is probably the front runner in this in this race, partly, of course, because of my own terrible luck and the fact that he's the one we couldn't get probably puts him out ahead but also of the three he is the closest to a household name because of the david cameron a-list thing and i suspect given that none of them are huge names i suspect that that slight level of recognition may hold him in good stead there's also the fact that he's visibly from an ethnic minority i think it's at least possible the conservative selector will think that to beat sadiq khan they need a, a visibly diverse candidate themselves. We shall see. The results of this this particular selection should be announced in the next few weeks, so we'll find out soon enough. I'm going to take next week off the podcast, so we'll be back in two weeks when I will probably be in Liverpool for Labour Conference. So you never know your luck. Maybe we'll maybe we'll record something there. 
One last thing before we go. Bob Melling, who's kind of a sort of friend of the podcast, by which I means he kind of listens and tweets us about it, and who, who was uh, kind enough to show me around Huddersfield when I was up there the other week, he pointed out there was a factual error in, in last week's edition when we were chatting about Yorkshire. James Ball, uh, a down now to himself, mentioned that the BMP had once had quite a powerful position on, on Cordedale Council, which covers Halifax, basically. Uh, Bob points out that's not technically true. The high point was actually 2004 when they only had three sitting councillors. So really not that dominant a position. You know, we're always happy to, always happy to correct factual errors around here, by which I mean, I kind of like covering my back. So if you want to tell me I'm wrong about something, then knock yourself out. Every other bucket does it. See you next time. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and produced by me, John Ellidge. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do consider leaving us an iTunes review. It really helps other people to discover the show. And, you know, the more people get listening to the show, the sooner I can achieve my real goal of world domination for the medium of trains. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. This is a Brooklyn Bound A Express. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.